Welcome to Vegan Business Talk with Katrina Fox, author of Vegan Ventures, Start and Grow an Ethical Business. Hello and welcome to episode 31 of Vegan Business Talk. I'm Katrina Fox, journalist, media trainer and editor of veganbusinessmedia.com, the multimedia blog providing success tips for vegan business owners and entrepreneurs. In this episode, I interview Liz D, co-owner and executive vice president of her family's business, Smarties Candy Company in the US, and CEO of impact investment firm, Belen and Bjorn Capital. Liz has worked with the Smarties Candy Company, which is a completely separate entity to Smarties in the UK, Australia and elsewhere, for many years. In 2011, while doing research on veganism for the business, the American company's products are vegan, Liz became aware of the cruelty and environmental devastation involved in animal agriculture and the fashion industry and became an ethical vegan. Through her extensive experience as a food company executive and recent venture capitalist, Liz is changing the conversation about food production and sustainable business. Based in New York, she's been featured in the New York Times, CNN Money, The Globe and Mail and The Toronto Star, among many other publications. Liz is also a popular public speaker on the topics of the future of food, impact investing and the move towards conscious business models. She set up Belen and Bjorn Capital with her husband Nick Garin earlier this year. So far, they've invested in vegan fashion brand Vaut Couture, plant-based meal delivery service Purple Carrot, food education tool Lighter, and lab meat company Memphis Meats. In this interview, Liz talks about how a negative mindset around money can hinder animal advocacy, the kinds of businesses she's looking to invest in, what she wants to see in a company that will convince her to invest, how to know if you're ready to receive investment, key things to include in your pitch deck to investors, the one thing you must do when pitching an investor above all else, and much more. Here's the interview with Liz D from the Smarties Candy Company and Belen and Bjorn Capital. Hello, Liz. Thank you so much for joining me today. Hi, Katrina. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, I'm very much looking forward to to speaking with you because you know you've you've done you've got an amazing business background. So I'm really excited about some of the insights that you're you're going to bring today. Um, so let's kick off with the, the first one, which is actually what I kind of I ask everybody when I interview them. So as well as working I'm in the family business at Smarties, um, you founded quite recently um, Belain and Bjorn Capital. I hope I've pronounced that right. You can correct me if I'm wrong. Um, with your husband Nick Garin, what are your drivers and reasons for this new venture? What's your why? I consider my work with Belen and Bjorn Capital to be for-profit activism for animals. And that's really our reason why is to alleviate animal suffering, particularly farmed animal suffering, which I could go on and on about if you'd like me to. (laughs) (laughs) 
Fantastic. I like the way you refer to it as for-profit activism. I think that's actually a really cool term because we often think about, you know, activism as being, you know, grassroots or very much rooted in the not-for-profit sector. Um, so I actually really like the fact that you've you've um, used that term for-profit activism, um, which is great. So one of the issues that particularly small business owners have who run their operations on vegan principles, and even more so, you know, if they're organic, sustainable, and fair trade, is uh, the cost of raw materials and ingredients and that forces them to price their products higher to make a profit and this perpetuates the idea that ethical is expensive i'm curious what thoughts do you have on what do you see as the solution to this and what advice would you give small business owners well this is obviously a massive topic um, so i'm only going to be able to take one cut at this very important uh question and issue but i think that in the consumer world we as consumers and as producers, uh, purchase things that we believe add value to our lives. And if the producer of an ethical product, a fair trade product, organic, sustainable product, can convey the value added due to these, uh, adhering to these ethical and business principles, the consumer will um, respond appropriately. And so it's a marketing challenge for sure. It's a messaging challenge. But I think that, you know, the economy will only support products that are viable. And so if it costs $1,000 to make a fair trade toothbrush, it's going to be awfully hard to market it unless you can convince people of the value added in their lives. And if you can do that, then you can sell it. For sure. Yeah, and that's right. It's about sharing the, the information or some of the, the other people I've, I've interviewed have kind of said that it's about sharing the stories and the processes behind the brand so that people don't just think, oh, you know, it's expensive. They're trying to rip me off. It's more a case of, OK, this is what is involved and this is why it's it's more expensive. Absolutely. And you're playing into people's sense of identity as well. If they consider themselves ethical people, if they consider themselves people who choose organic products over conventional products when there's a choice, then you and you communicate that effectively, then you can have success in that in that world. But it's really also understanding your consumer and what their needs are and meeting their needs. Because in the end of the day, I think that creating products is um, an important way to think about creating products as a, as a producer is, is to solve a problem that exists in the world. So if the problem is that they can't find an ethically made toothbrush and you can solve that problem and convey that message correctly in a way that resonates with the consumer and you understand what their needs are, then you can find success in the market. Yeah, I love that. I love that, finding the solution. Absolutely. So what in your, and this is an interesting one, what needs to be done, like whether at a consumer level, a government or business level to make plant-based foods and other products accessible to the masses and including those in, in disadvantaged communities or on low to no incomes? Well, this question as well has a range and it's very complicated and there are a range of responses, um, all of which would need to be addressed and implemented. It's just a massive, a massive issue. So I'm just going to take a cut at it. So um, talking about plant-based foods and making them accessible to the masses, part of what I think about that is um, an education, a step in education, so that people can see how, how they can eat a plant-based diet on a budget. Because for sure, so many of the products that are plant-based are affordable. And it's 
it's in large part a matter of understanding what those products are, how to prepare them, um, how to make them taste good, and where to find them. Of course, there are accessibility issues. Of course, there are issues with government subsidies. Um, but I do believe that it is it, it is possible and easy to eat plant-based on a budget if you have adequate information. Got it. I mean, I'm quite interested in what the, the work of Josh Tetrick, what he's doing with getting his products into places like Walmart and Target. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think that it's really um, smart for businesses to consider marketing and selling to quote unquote mainstream consumers and consumers who are shopping on a budget. You, um, If you can offer value, then that's a wonderful thing. If you can make it accessible, that's a wonderful thing. Of course, you know, I have a local um, natural food store. I'm lucky enough. I shop there, but the, pr the prices are more expensive. Not everyone necessarily is, has that or can afford it. So, or chooses to do that. Maybe it's just not a trade-off they're willing to make. So to focus on retailers who um, offer discount, um, less expensive or more value added uh, products where you can get more for less um, makes a lot of sense. And it allows you to scale as well, because that's where um, the economies of scale really kick in when you can do a very high volume production. Right. Got it. Absolutely. For sure. Thank you for sharing that. So talking about, you know, the plant-based foods, particularly we're in the midst of a plant-based revolution, which means there's a lot more players in the arena, both ethical vegan brands and also non-vegan run businesses that are kind of capitalizing, I guess, on, on the trend. What advice would you have for plant-based businesses on how to stand out both within and outside of the vegan business arena um, and attract clients and customers? Well, I'm going to focus for this question specifically on food manufacturers. Um, I think that if they can nail price, taste, and convenience, then they can be competitive, not just uh, from within the plant-based food uh, arena, but being competitive with their animal, um, traditional animal ingredient alternatives. So, for instance, if you're making a veggie burger and it tastes just as good, if not better, than a regular burger and the price is right, so it costs the same, if not less, and the convenience is there so that people understand, first of all, can, can access it, can, can purchase it, can find it in their store. Second of all, understand how to cook it, prepare it. You know, there are some people who really don't understand how to prepare uh, plant-based foods, so you need to take that out of the box for them a bit and make it really clear and make it as close ideally, in my opinion, as close to the animal alternative as possible so that there's a very little, very small learning curve. And then backing up what I'm kind of addressing, which um, to me goes without saying, but I think it should be said, is that they need to think about, in my opinion, uh, they need to think about the consumer, not that not as themselves, because they perhaps, the producers, may be vegan, plant-based, and there may be things that are intuitive to them that other people wouldn't, that wouldn't translate well for um, an omnivore consumer. I think that people need to be considering their consumers and their target demographics as people who um, are in the mainstream, who are omnivores, because that's where we're going to really get the traction. If you look at the, by the numbers, we're in the minority. When I'm, uh, and we might touch on this later, but when I'm uh, thinking about investing in businesses, I don't think about the products that they create in terms of whether I would purchase them. I think that that's a mistake. I think about it in terms of what is possible in the market as it exists today. 
That's a really good point. I'm so glad that you've brought that up because I think you're right. A lot of um, vegan business owners, they do think about, you know, well, I want to create this product because I think it's fabulous and I would eat it and maybe my friends would eat it. But you're absolutely right to actually, you know, tap into what non-vegans would, would want to eat is is really quite different and requires quite a lot of research. So I'm really glad that you, you brought that up. That's really um, excellent advice. And I guess so related to that then is about the word vegan in a company's uh, marketing materials on their website and the prominence of the word. There's two schools of thought. One, oh, it's limiting. It's still a scary word. Or secondly, you know, vegans kind of become a bit more hot and cool and trendy and it's clever niche marketing. Curious to get your thoughts on this and what advice you would give to brands on that. Yeah, I've been thinking about this a lot, um, probably since I've gone vegan um, for the last five years. So Perhaps I could be the third school of thought. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) I think that the word vegan is a tool and it cuts both ways. And it can be very effective depending on how you use it. So I have seen businesses use the word vegan uh, in marketing their products very successfully. And I've seen it. And by successfully, I mean, I've seen it appeal to omnivores and that was their target to really appeal to omnivores because they've used it alongside other words that they understand. But it, it really depends on the product itself, the target demographic and what they may or may not think about, um, the word. So if the product is for people who, may have never heard the word before or only have negative connotations to the word, you definitely are being um, presented with a challenge if you would like to use the word for your marketing. And so I'm a very numbers driven person. I'm, you know, I think about, um, like I said, demographics, think about uh, geography, think about cultures, the prevailing cultural norms. And and I, I believe it's important to work within those uh, to market the products, because at the end of the day, The goal is not necessarily to change the perception of veganism. The goal is to market and sell your product, which will inevitably help animals, um, which for me is the end goal. So I think it makes sense to go into this question with your eyes wide open, really understanding, having conversations with people, asking them what they think. And it can be um, a matter of the font, the size of where you where you place the word. Um, and, and there are just so many factors involved to how to market a product. I definitely wouldn't, um, only use the word vegan to market vegan products ever, uh, because there are just so many attributes to me. Vegan is an umbrella term that means so many wonderful things. And why not pull up those things if and when and how they resonate with your target demographic? I love that. I love that you've really focused on that because sometimes I think vegan business owners say, oh, you know, and you say to them, well, who's your product for? And they say, oh, everyone. And that's the really the wrong way to go about it. So I love that you're really diving quite deeply and stressing the fact that people do need to very much identify with their market. And it's interesting, actually, um, just this week, Forbes um, ran an article just on that, like, you know, the word, uh, whether to use the word vegan and plant based. It's really interesting. Even having that discussion on Forbes, I guess, shows, um, you know, uh, progress and how far 
we've come. So it's uh, certainly an interesting one. Thank you for sharing your thoughts on that. So let's talk about investments. So as I say, you've worked in the family business, Smarties, for a very long time, and you've fairly recently created your your company, your vegan um, venture capital fund. And you've already invested in some vegan-run businesses, including Vaught Couture and Purple Carrot, as well as lab-grown meat company, Memphis Meats. So I know you touched on this a little bit earlier. Can you go into a little bit more depth um, around what do you look for in a company when you're considering investing in it? I look for so many things that this entire interview could be focused just on that and I wouldn't cover them. So I'll try to be, I'll try to stay top level. Um, for To begin with, the product, whatever they're selling, absolutely must displace traditional animal products in the market. If someone is bringing a product that may be vegan um, or plant-based, but doesn't necessarily, uh, the consumption of which doesn't necessarily mean that someone's not buying an animal product, that's not really interesting to us because we are mission-driven. So that's our number one screen. Um, In addition to that, uh, we need to see how this product could be a success in the market. And that is up to the founders and the business owners, entrepreneurs to show us. So if it's post product, and that by that I mean the product already exists on the market, it's a lot easier to show by the numbers, um, the margins and the goals and, and really where they're going in their trajectory. If it's pre-product, it's a bit more of a challenge for an entrepreneur because they need to convince us of an idea and they may not have anything to show us yet uh, to eat or to see or to feel tactile. Um, and so that's really a challenge to the entrepreneur in their pitch to uh, to show how they're going to be be a successful business. So I don't think that it's an ugly thing to say that they need to show us how they're going to make money because if they don't make money, they're not going to be successful and that's not going to make a difference on behalf of animals. So for me, it's a win-win um, in that respect. And then in the company itself, we really want to see a dedicated passionate, smart team. And I do say team, not necessarily just, you know, just a founder, which don't get me wrong. That's wonderful. But uh, that's, that's the keystone and cornerstone. But if there's co-founders, for instance, that's great. Um, If they have, if they understand that they can't do it all, that they bring in the expertise to fill in the gaps, that's a wonderful sign. Because so my grandfather founded Smarties Candy Company and at 91 years old, he still comes in every day. Why, why am I telling <laughs> you this? Uh, because <laughs> you have to be a little bit crazy to found, <laughs> to, to, to create a successful business. And my grandfather has that crazy. He has that spark. He's an amazing man. And I know what that spark looks like. And that's the spark where you know that person's going to pull an all-nighter if that's what needs to get done to, to make the job done. And so I, I, I look for that in founders as well. I love that. I think that's a brilliant quote, actually. I can see a Facebook meme around that attributed to you going around. That's really cool. You have to be a little bit crazy to be an entrepreneur. I love that. Um, Just I want to touch on that first thing you said. When you said you're looking for products that displace animal products, I'm I'm a little bit unclear with that because doesn't any kind of vegan product do that? Like if it was a vegan chocolate biscuit or another vegan cheese. So can you explain a little bit by what you mean about displacing animal products? Absolutely. Thank you. I realize you can't read my mind. And so sometimes I'm not always (laughs) clear. So 
we do get people who come to us who are presenting products that are kind of in the gray area of whether or not they will displace products on the market. And if you think about it in terms of, well, what's vegan in the grocery store? Produce. Produce is vegan. But if somebody buys a carrot, that doesn't mean they're not buying steak. Um, so, for instance, an example of this would be kale chips. If somebody came to us to um, seek investment in a kale chip company, they would be really hard pressed to convince me that by purchasing a kale chip, a consumer is not purchasing a pork rind. Okay, right. Okay. I see where you're coming from. Whereas if someone created a vegan equivalent, which they have apparently called snacklins, like a vegan pork rind, would that be something you'd be more interested in? Yes, exactly. Got so it. they really okay. need to be thinking about it, um, at least for our investment. And and I should qualify this by saying that there are um, many investors in the food space who are not mission driven. I'm just speaking for Belen and Bjorn Capital. And um, and if you read the news, you can see who they are. And they're looking to, you know, invest in great companies, making great products. And they do, they don't have this requirement. They don't have this screen. But for us, just, you know, for your insight, um, that is of vital importance for us. Yes. So something like that, something like a beef jerky alternative, for instance, um, you know, the, the things that you would think about as vegan products generally displace animal products in the market because we often don't think about all the things that are so obviously vegan that they don't even re require any um, uh, qualification <clears throat> like the kale chip, like the potato chip. Got it. Got it. Now that makes sense now. Thank you for clarifying that. So I know you've covered some of the the kind of the the general, like you said, the top level um, aspects of what you look for in a company. What can we take a little bit more of a slightly deeper dive in? What kind of then say documentation would they need to come up with? Because I, I get that they need the passion and the team. Then if you go a little to the next level, then what are some of the say the documentations that are you looking for that they need to come up with to be taken seriously by you? Okay. Well, first, and it sounds obvious, but uh, you'd be surprised, they would need to be ready to receive investment. Sometimes people come to us seeking investment, and then as the conversation continues, it's clear that they will be ready to seek investment in a year and a half. And while I love talking about this with people, it's important to know when you're ready so that you can keep that momentum going when you're speaking with investors. Um so uh, <laughs> I think that's kind of obvious and maybe still a top level one, but still worth mentioning. When no, definitely. When well, what does that mean then? When, when how 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 do they know and how do you know when they're ready to receive invest? Because that's an interesting one. Because I would think a lot of business owners will go from the beginning. I'm so ready, you know, give me money. So that's kind of an interesting <laughs> one. So I wonder if you could just explain that. How yeah. do they know and how do you know that they're ready for yeah. investment? Yeah, and I, I want to qualify what I'm saying by by saying we've only had this company for less than a year, so. There may be seasoned uh, investors listening to this who are smacking their foreheads. Um, <laughs> bear with me. Hopefully, I can provide some insights that can still be of use to people. Um, we have made four investments thus far and speak with new entrepreneurs, probably one a week, um, if not more. And uh, I love it. It's my passion. So I'm learning here, too. Um, but in regarding being ready for investment, what I'm, what I'm referring to is uh, when a company is ready for investment, they understand how they want to structure it. So when you think about an investment, maybe you think, okay, well, someone gives me a certain amount of money and that translates directly into equity or stock in my company. But that's not 
really, especially in early stage, which is when we invest, that's not always the way investments are structured. Sometimes they're structured in a convertible note. Uh, sometimes uh, they're structured. A convertible note is an is really <laughs> it's really a loan that converts to equity at a preferred rate. So, uh, what does that mean? Well, you understand that if your company is valued at a thousand, well, yeah, let's let's go with a thousand dollars, and uh, somebody makes a five hundred dollar investment in your company, if it's converting directly into shares, that's a fifty percent share yeah. in your company. But if you don't have a valuation for your company yet, and there are many, many companies who are seeking investments who aren't prepared to make a valuation for their company yet, um, they might still want, they may still want and need an investment. So what they do is they they seek out investments in convertible notes, and it's a loan that can uh, convert to equity. So the conversion rate, uh, but the conversion rate is not one-to-one. So converting to equity one-to-one would be a $500 investment in a $1,000 valued company is 50%. Yeah. But if it is a conversion rate where your $500 gets you actually more, it, it's it's a conversion rate where your $500 gets you more equity than a one-to-one conversion. Okay. Yeah. Sorry well, for the you for long way that. No, that's right. <laughs> this is, no, it's good. This is so useless. This is wonderful. I love it. This is such good information. Um, thank you. Okay, cool. So that's so that's a different type of, of structure. Okay, cool. Okay. And so and so you asked about what we require from businesses, and I haven't quite gotten there yeah. yet. Um, <laughs> detailed information in the form of a pitch deck, as well as FaceTime, whether via Skype if they're across the world or in person with the leadership. So okay. in the pitch deck, which um, there are a lot of resources uh, on the internet and other and from businesses that can as- assist in understanding what to put in a pitch deck, how to make your pitch deck look the way it should look. But there are some basic things that pitch decks uh, require, and they're kind of no brainers to a certain extent. But to another extent, sometimes we see them and they just don't have that information for whatever reason. Um, so uh, obviously, information about the company information about the founders, um, information about the product that the company is selling, and then financial breakdowns, if possible, um, of the business up until that point. So a gross margin analysis, um, all of the fin- all of the financials that they can provide. And actually, this is another thing where <clears throat> sometimes companies are not prepared to provide financials because they're still waiting on their accountant for last year's numbers. And and it goes on and on. There are a lot of reasons why people aren't ready to present financials. Well, wait to if you're if you're going to be trying to convince someone to um, invest, definitely have all of your numbers ready. Um, not only in the pitch deck, but also for your for your conversation, um, because it's one thing to have uh, a wonderful, beautiful pitch deck, uh, and it's another and and it's quite another to have a wonderful, beautiful pitch deck and to know your stuff on top of it um, and to be ready to answer questions about it, ready to answer questions that don't, ex- that are not answered in the deck. Um, so I think I'll stop there. Uh, but there are a lot yeah, of, no, this is really, there are a lot of resources really available useful. on that topic. For sure. Can I just ask you quickly, is a pitch deck similar to a business plan? 
A business, so a business plan is important too. Thank you. And that would also be good to see. Uh, sometimes the pitch deck can include the business plan. So um, I didn't mention projections, but that's incredibly important. If, as I said before, if they can't show us how they're going to be a successful business, then to me that, that, that says they don't have a plan. And we need to see, we would need to see a plan for how the company intends to succeed in the market and grow. Got it. Got it. So I think you've probably touched on that. I was going to ask my next question was going to be, what are some of the mistakes that businesses or startups make when seeking investors? I think you've touched on that a little bit. Is there any any other kind of standout mistakes that you, you see? I'm going to address this on the positive side. I'm going to say, um, above all else, be honest. If you don't know the answer to a question, definitely say you don't know. If um, if you're speaking with other investors and you're not sure about certain things, like for instance, um, sometimes companies are getting a lot of interest from investors, but don't necessarily have a lead investor yet, a lead investor meaning uh, the first invest, potential, potentially meaning it can mean the first investor. Um, you know, just be really transparent because the whiff or sniff of any sort of shadiness or wrongdoing um, is a guaranteed failure slash blacklist situation. <laughs> Got it. That's a really good point, actually, because I think you're right. Sometimes, you know, if someone's asking you a question and you're, you're so desperate to get them on board that they try and kind of blag their way through it. And I, so I like that you've said that. It's much better to just say, look, I actually don't know. Um, so thank you for, for sharing that. So if a vegan business wants to wanted to approach your company for investment, what steps would they need to take? Like, do you prefer people to go through, say, a third party, like a broker? Do they approach you directly? What What's the, the process? They're welcome to approach us directly. We do not, uh, many of our relationships, um, yeah, many many of the ways that we meet entrepreneurs is through our relationships, but some people come to us directly, particularly after um, we speak in media, in interviews such as this, and I welcome that. People are welcome to go to our website, and there is a contact page there, contact us uh, link there, where people can send us a message, and from there, if, they're, if they fit our criteria, um, we schedule a conversation. Fantastic. Fantastic. Thank you for sharing that. So on the topic of business and money wealth, and I'm interested to get your take on this because another person I interviewed was uh, Sebastiano Cossia Castiglione, who you're probably aware of, who you know is very wealthy. And it was interesting to get his take. And I'm, I'm interested to get your take on the whole thing as well. So the media perpetuates the, the notion that rich people are greedy, corrupt and, and unethical. Um, and the Sydney Morning Herald in Australia ran an article not so long ago that basically mused that the, only the, the wealthy only get that way by doing something dodgy. What's your whole take on that? I avoid sweeping generalizations of any groups of people. <laughs> I'm going to start by saying that. I believe that there are ethical, kind people across all income categories and that there are greedy and corrupt and unethical people across all income categories. So I think it's possible, of course, that there's correlation but that doesn't necessarily mean that there's causation between being greedy, corrupt, and unethical and having money. Good answer. I like that. <laughs> Excellent. So following on from that, there's this idea or myth that um, is that you can only 
and, and I think this holds back some vegan business owners and entrepreneurs, particularly if they come from activist background, because they're worried they'll have that you know they'll have to cross the line or go over to the dark side and make some kind of compromise in order to become financially wealthy and run a successful, profitable enterprise. Um, what would you say to them? I would say this kind of fits into the previous question in terms of the concept that money is bad. And that in order to make money, we have to do bad things, um, which is, I do not believe that to be the case at, at all. I think that's a misconception. And I think that perhaps by understanding or thinking about money and what money can do, um, the way I think about it, I think about it as energy. So um, you can do anything with it. You can create things with it. Um, money makes, you know, <clears throat> money makes things happen. And so that's just, that's just how our system works and, and other things make things happen too, but we need to, you know, see clearly that money is neutral in my opinion and powerful. Um, and so when we talk about going to the dark side or crossing a line in order to, um, become wealthy, I just don't see that. I just don't see that as the case. Um, and then I think that people who are creative and have activist backgrounds who want to start their own businesses should start their own businesses. If they, if they have a great concept and a great product and they're passionate and they're driven and they can make it successful, they should go for it. They should not hold back. It doesn't mean they're going to be, you know, jumping into a tank of sharks. It's, it's an <laughs> exciting space to be in. There's money to be made there, but more importantly than that, why they're doing it, they're doing it to alleviate animal suffering, if that if that's why they're doing it. And so to think about the possibilities in terms of creating a more humane world, it would be uh, it would be a missed opportunity to really make a big impact on behalf of animals if they didn't come because they thought that it was un um, necessarily unethical. Lovely. I really like that. That's really, really great advice and inspirational advice, which is fantastic. I love your positive outlook, actually. Um, so just related to that above question. So there's some and I've seen, you know, discussions on, on you know, social media. There's some in the vegan and the animal rights community, and they're critical of what they're calling vegan capitalism or vegan consumerism. And they're arguing that, that you know, that's not the answer to creating a fair and just world for animals or people. What's your thoughts on that, Liz? I would say... I agree because there is no one answer. I think it's part of the answer. So I'm certainly not critical of this concept of vegan capitalism or vegan consumerism. I am very excited about it, in fact. But to create a fair and just world for animals and people requires more than just taking an economic capitalistic cut. It, it requires taking a cut at every aspect of our lives. So for instance, <clears throat> if I were... Um, you know, involved in investing for animals on one hand, but uh, being incredibly cruel and unkind to the animals in my life on the other, you know, is that enough? No, I think that it requires a systemic approach that touches all aspects of our culture and of our economy and of our political structures so that we can actually build the foundation for a more humane world. And I think that it's happening. For sure. Great. 
Yeah. And it's part of the solution um, as well, which I mean, I for me, because I had kind of issues around that myself. And the way I, I got around it is recognizing that the vegan run, ethical vegan run businesses, whether you call them plant based or vegan, doing that is a form of activism. Um, and, it, and it's important. Um, I spoke to David Benzer when he was on the show uh, last week and he was saying, you know, he moved sort of out of the grassroots advocacy into business um, because it's about providing the solution. So once we've educated people, um, you know, around, you know, animal issues, uh, uh, human rights issues, environment, we then have to provide them with solutions so that they can live in accordance with those um, values. So I, I think that's kind of similar to, to, what, to what you're saying, which is, which is great. Let's talk a little bit about the lab-grown meat because I know you've invested in Memphis meats. And again, I've seen, you know, some of the discussions going on in the vegan and, and animal rights communities. And some are saying it's not a good move because it doesn't do anything to shift consciousness around animals as being food or simply as resources for human consumption. And others are that the lab-grown meat will actually compete against plant-based meat innovations, such as those being produced by Impossible Foods and Beyond Meat. Tell me, tell me your thoughts on this. Sure. So... A little bit of a backstory um, to, to illustrate my thoughts on this. When I went vegan, my husband promptly went vegan too, and my parents decided to go vegan. And it was all because I was sharing information with them, and I thought that I had the magic touch, and I thought that everybody in my life was going to go vegan. <laughs> and as I well, you did a pretty good job to begin with. That's pretty cool. <laughs> I'd say you got a bit of a magic touch. <laughs> it's, but it's not about me. It's about people being ready um, to receive the information and, and have it resonate in a way that causes them to make changes in their own lives. And I attribute their evolution to them entirely. I just happened to be the provider of some information that tipped the scales. But but what I what I want to <laughs> where I want to go with this is that I thought wrongly that everybody was going to go vegan, that everybody was ready. It was just a matter of not having the information. And then I realized quite quickly and with much disappointment that that wasn't necessarily the case, that not everybody is ready to go vegan. Not everybody is ready to give up eating meat. So what I see um, clean meat, cultured meat doing, um, the potential of it is offering a slaughter-free product for people who will not give up eating animal products, at least not for now. Uh, we need to look at the numbers. It's just there are, by the numbers, the majority of people, the vast majority of people still eat animals and animal products. And so I think that it would be irresponsible to stop the forward progress of slaughter-free meat um, because we think it could compete with plant-based meat. Sure, it could compete with plant-based meat. They can compete with one another too. I think competition's a good thing. I think that competition causes people to make the best possible products, which is gonna make the biggest possible impact for animals. So for me, I'm very pro uh, cultured meat, clean meat. I would have loved to have that available to me when I had a cat who um, ate animal products uh, so that I could feed him that. It's not something that I was interested in, and I am interested in the Impossible Burger and the Beyond Burger, and I'm very excited about them, by the way. Um, yeah. I don't I don't really see that much of a conflict between the two. I see them as having um, di different demographics, but even if they don't, I welcome competition. I think it's going to make us be make better products. Mm, no, that's a good point because I know I saw something from a couple of prominent activists, and I think the argument was it's gonna it'll make vegan activism harder because people will kind of go, yeah, but why should I go vegan if I can have these products? 
Well, I think, um, and I'm by no, I am by no means a medical doctor or nutrition expert, but I think there are plenty of reasons um, just for one's own health why they would want to cut back um, significantly on the amount of animal products they eat. So perhaps if someone said, well, why would I ever give up meat if I could eat slaughter-free meat? Okay, if you're, if you're willing to, you know, take those calculated risks, that's your, that's your choice. Yeah, I think they were coming more from an ethical perspective, like, you know, why would someone shift from an ethical perspective to not eating animals if they've got these choices? It, it's an interesting um, topic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it's, it's a fascinating one. I'm kind of like mulling through, you know, my thoughts on it because I report on it in some of the vegan business news roundup. And I guess it's it's that, I guess for me, it's that kind of, I can see it like on a logical perspective, I have to support it because, you know, it, obviously, you know, it'll save lots of animals from, from being slaughtered. But at the same time, it's kind of that. It's still sort of perpetuating the idea of animals as being resources for us. So it's a, it's an interesting one, and I guess I'm evolving my my views on it. So I, I appreciate your your input on that. That's um that's fantastic. Yeah, I uh, and just do you mind if I just touch on that? I'll go for it. Yeah, go for it. So when I think about um investing, like I said, I don't think about myself as the end consumer. I also think about um what I would want if I were an animal. So if I were an animal, I don't think I would necessarily be so concerned with how people are objectifying me. Don't get me wrong. I don't want people to eat, consume, uh, objectify animals. But the truth is they're already doing it. So for those people who are already doing it, who um, maybe aren't ready or are not willing to make that shift either in their consumption habits or mentally, this provides an alternative that I would certainly prefer Um, because there are some people who just might never be open and willing to eat plant-based alternatives to animal products. And for them, this is a solution. And the truth is this is so far, um, we've got many years, (laughs) hopefully not too many, but many years before we actually see how this plays out. Um, but a lot of it's speculation at this point, we know that our best efforts up until this point with advocating on behalf of animals, advocating, um, different perspectives in terms of for people to stop using and mistreating animals have gotten us as far as we've gotten. And there's so much further to go. So I think that this is part of the solution as well. Yeah, no, absolutely. No, that's that's great. I appreciate that. Thank you for sharing that. So with your extensive corporate background through Smarties and now your new venture capital business, I'm curious, what influence, if any, are you able to have on the business and corporate world on in, on ethical issues and including animal advocacy? I'm curious about that too. I'm exploring that now. Uh, I only just started to speak publicly about investing for animals as for-profit activism. And what I'm really looking forward to doing is speaking in spaces where people um, aren't necessarily mission aligned, but they're interested in the future of food and investing in that space. And I'm actually going to be doing that later today, um, speaking at a group called Nexus. And I'm speaking about investing for animals um, very briefly, but I'm, I'm speaking to people who are investors, philanthropists, who uh, are high net worth individuals who could move into this space. And I would like to amplify the opportunities, amplify the communication of the opportunities in this space, not only um, to make money where I think there is money to be made in this space, but also for, of course, animals and the environment and human health and all the wonderful reasons why it makes sense to um, support consumption of alternatives to animal products. So I really hope to influence people who 
aren't agreeing with me. For sure. No, absolutely. I was curious because it's like, you know, sometimes those kind of people will only listen to certain types of people. Like a friend of mine is Philip Wallen, who's the former vice president of Citibank mm. um, here in Australia. And, you know, he's very, you know, corporate background. So, you know, looks very dignified. And so when you put him in a room with, you know, th as we did with a big animal matters, like a business conference here in Australia, you know, you put him in a room with 300 CEOs. They have to listen to him, or they, they they're open to listening to him. So I'm 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 guessing that's that will sort of happen with you because you've got the the smarties um, kind of kudos, I guess. You know that people kind of go, yeah, I'm going to listen to it because you know what I mean. You're you're kind of one of them. Yes, I'm really lucky in that respect. Now I don't speak on behalf of smarties because I'm a minority uh, co-owner, so it's we're not a we don't call ourselves a vegan business, although our products are vegan. Um, but I do speak from where I stand, which is as a co-owner and executive of the company. And there is no doubt that it opens so many doors, as does Belen and Bjorn Capital, through which I would not otherwise be able to walk. And I am going to walk through all of the as many doors as I possibly can <laughs> to amplify this message and speak to people who um, wouldn't otherwise listen to someone um, if they didn't have the business background that I have. Brilliant, brilliant. That's fantastic. So, final couple of questions. Um, a lot of business, and this is about you know for for business owners. A lot of business owners say that running and owning a business it's a fastest and most effective form of personal development because you know you've got to get out of your comfort zone. What personal qualities do you believe are essential to staying the course and and running a successful business? There are so many. <laughs> <laughs> there are so many, and, and again, that we could speak the entire time on, on just this topic alone. So I'm just going to take a, my cut on this one. Okay. <laughs> um, and it's a it's a great question, and I think about this a lot because I continue to try to be the best version of myself and the most effective, and uh, do the most in the smallest amount of time, do the most with the smallest budget, all the things that people need to think about to be effective. Um, so personal qualities, well. I think knowing what you, um, knowing your strengths and knowing your weaknesses are very important because when you're responsible for um, a company or part of a company, you don't want your strengths and your weaknesses to translate to the company's strengths and weaknesses. You want your strengths to benefit the company and your weaknesses to be areas where you fill those gaps with tools, resources, and people who have expertise that you don't have. And so it really requires a continual self-reflection um, to see yourself clearly, which is a challenge. And to see, you know, where you're coming up short and where you need to delegate, where you need to ask for help and where you need to back away because being the driver, the driver of every single aspect of your business is a mistake. So if you are great with finances, but terrible with art, you should not be touching that package design. <laughs> yeah. So I'll stop there. I think that's kind of the, a good top level cut from my perspective. Yeah. It's interesting you say that because uh, uh, I, I like the fact that you say, yeah, you've got to know your strengths and your weaknesses. I'm wondering, though, whether there's an aspect, and, and I don't want to do generalizations of not, but I sometimes think sometimes with, with women, they can have a lot more self-doubt um, about their abilities, um, particularly in the business world. Would you agree with that? Or what are your thoughts on that? Well, we certainly get underestimated. Uh, whether we do it ourselves, I don't know if I could generalize that. But if you look at the data, um, 
in terms of, of course, compensation, at least in the U.S., I haven't looked at the data for Australia, but I'm guessing it's similar. Um, you know, we're being paid less than mm, less for yeah. doing the same amount of work um, or for having the same qualifications as a man. And so I suspect that also creeps into our own. It must you know, we must be guilty of that, too, creeps into our own psyches and underestimate our own abilities. Yeah. Yeah, they sure. Are there any specific steps or strategies or things that you do um, to ensure that you've got a strong mental and emotional well-being as a business owner? I think um, with the interview you did with Adrienne for the fabulous La Fashionista Compassionista magazine, you mentioned sleep, um, which was was one of them. But uh, is there any any um, tips that you can offer business owners to ensure that they, uh, you know, are, are able to be resilient and have that strong emotional and mental well-being? Yes, I think that uh, taking care of oneself is the, one of the most generous things that we can do. And it's something that gets a bad rap. Even even people who say, oh, you have to, you know, put on your own oxygen mask first before you put it on, you know, the child <laughs> next to you. And we get that concept and we understand it. And then we still run ourselves completely ragged. And when That's we true. do that, we're no good for our businesses. We're no good for our interpersonal relations, for our spouses, the animals in our lives. Um I think that, like I said before, I, I, I'm constantly trying to evolve um, to be the best version of myself that I can be and to be of service. And in order to do that, I have to uh, respect my body <laughs> enough to know when it needs to recharge so that my mind computer is operating uh, <laughs> at the highest level it can possibly be operating and my attention, my um, energy is there. And so number one is sleep. I, uh, I value that very highly. Uh, I think it's important. I think it gets overlooked. I think it's the first place that people cut, cut. It when is. They need it's to, mine. It's, de- it's mine. Actually, so. <laughs> yeah. And, um, and I think that that's a, that's a, it can be, I'll speak for myself. It's a misunderstanding of what needs to happen because when you have more things than you could possibly do, the answer is not, okay, I just won't sleep. The answer is, how can I come up with some creative solutions and strategies to get more done, to delegate, to put on the back burner, to prioritize? Um, it requires actually even more so a clear head so that you can strategize and prioritize what needs to get done. And so I, uh, in addition to sleep, I, I meditate, I practice yoga. Um, and I'm not suggesting this is what needs to happen for other people. I'm just sharing what I do. I think that people need to do what works for them. Um, I make sure that I don't check my work emails at times when I would never be able to respond to those emails at that point anyway. So walking down the street um, right before bed. Now, I, I'm occasionally guilty of this, but but for mental, for mental health, um, you know, just saying, you know, for the next hour before bed, I'm putting my phone away, my computer away. This is not work time. Um, sometimes we fool ourselves into thinking that we're better, quote unquote, better at doing what we do because we are so dedicated and, and focused and are only thinking about that one thing. But I think that that's a mistake, at least for me. I find that when I dive in too deep and don't back away to get perspective, I miss things and I'm missing that top level uh, forest for the trees perspective that's required to do my job well. 
Oh, that's such good advice. That's wonderful. As you're you're saying that, I'm, I know you can't see me. I'm literally nodding away as you're saying this. So that it, that's such good advice, and, and I know I'm certainly guilty of it. Sleep and exercise tend to be my two that I sacrifice if I'm on a deadline, and it's always to the detriment. As soon as I get the good sleep and I do the exercise, I'm like, oh yeah, of course, you know. Oh so, yes, so. <laughs> oh yes, Katrina. I completely agree. I actually um, exercise. Yes, I color code my calendar. Um, so now you're getting a real glimpse into into my my life. I color code my calendar for um for exercise uh for writing I write not necessarily about um my work but I try to take time to step away and write so that I can reprioritize my goals and perspective um to see myself more clearly to see you know where I could improve in different areas and uh and I plan a lot I'm very into planning I think that what we plan we you know become what, what, what we plan we do yeah. And I schedule things down to the T. So I schedule when I need to leave work to go home or else I won't leave. Oh, that's a good one. That's a good, that's a really good. T- this is great. I'm so impressed. This is really, I'm picking up some strategies for myself as well. I'm sure our listeners will as well. That's, that's wonderful. <laughs> Thank you so much I for sharing that, Liz. It totally is. It absolutely is for sure. Okay, um, so just fi- final question. <laughs> Thank you. Um, final question is what's your long-term vision for Belain and Beyond Capital and for yourself? I don't have more than a five-year vision for Belen and Bjorn Capital in terms of where we'll be because, well, I have goals, of course, but in five five plus years, I'll have a sense of how the companies in which we've invested are doing and how well we're driving the ship. And if at that point, um, the companies in which we've invested are doing very well and very successful, which I believe that they will be, of course, Um, that'll be information which will inform our next steps. Uh, Does it mean that we will then create a fund that we will, uh, a a larger fund that is not privately funded that will accept um, other people's money? Because because right when we founded the company, I should mention as a side note, which is so uh, incredibly heartening, people said, oh, I want to invest. How can I invest in your fund? And I said, well, I'm not ready for that. I'm not ready to manage other people's money. I might be losing money. I need to know, like, <laughs> I need to know what I'm doing and, and, and uh, you know, get more experience and m- take risks with our funds before I could take on that responsibility. So, um, so perhaps that means that at that point we would start a fund um, or perhaps uh, it means something entirely different. Um, getting more involved in a company in a way that I had never considered before Uh I don't, I couldn't say for sure. Um, my full-time job is at Smarties. I do have a lot of responsibility there. I, it's hard for me to imagine myself uh, being extricated from that structure. So I, I think that uh, in five years, if I'm doing the same thing that I'm doing today, I will be very happy because I love, I love what we're doing. Fantastic. You're doing some amazing work and I, I know you're very, very busy and I really appreciate you taking the time to do such an, an in-depth interview with me and to, you know, share your advice and your your expertise. Um, it, it's been absolutely wonderful. Thank you so much for joining me, Liz. Thank you. It was an absolute pleasure speaking with you today. So that was Liz D from the Smarties Candy Company and Belen and Bjorn Capital. You can find out more at smarties.com and belenbjorncapital.com. And those links are on the show notes page at veganbusinessmedia.com forward slash podcasts. Now for our vegan business news roundup. Manhattan and Brooklyn have their fair share of vegan eateries, 
Now the trend is spreading into other suburbs as Queen's gears up to get its first vegan restaurant, reports DNA Info. Har Sinai, or Mount Sinai in Hebrew, will replace Waffers, a Lebanese restaurant which closed in June this year. Co-owner Renee David Alcalay said the new spot, which is due to open in September in Forest Hills, will offer up a mixture of cuisines, including gourmet pizza and sushi, as well as Lebanese dishes previously served by Waffers. Other menu items include roasted butternut squash salad, chickpea miso gravy bowl with sweet and tangy portobello mushrooms, sweet potato casserole with a crunchy nut crumble and vegan enchiladas, along with kosher wines and beers, Alkalay told DNA Info. Now, while Queen's does have some vegetarian restaurants, Ha Sinai will be the first all-vegan, organic and kosher eatery. So this is great news. It's always good to see vegan businesses opening in the suburbs as well as major cities. And let's hope that Ha Sinai is the first of many in Queens. The mayor of Turin, Italy, announced this month that she'd like her city to be much more vegetarian and vegan, reports Metro. Chiara Appendino, the city's new mayor, released a 62-page manifesto detailing how she plans to make promoting vegan and vegetarian diets a priority. While specifics have not yet been made public, speculation is that nutritionists will teach the benefits of plant-based eating, along with other experts and academics who will highlight animal welfare and environmental issues. Wow, (laughs) what a smart politician. We so need more leaders like this in influential positions to step up and take a stand. And this is an opportunity for vegan business owners to become involved and help steer the education process, while of course raising their profile. And I really hope that politicians in other cities will be inspired by Chiara and take a lead from her. Finding a plant-based milk that doesn't curdle when added to coffee just got a whole lot easier, thanks to San Francisco startup Willow Cup. The company is launching a line of bottled latte drinks that have all the creaminess and froth of dairy, without the cruelty, reports Tech Insider. The product is set to launch in some Bay Air retail locations later this year, followed by ice creams, frostings and coffee creamers in grocery stores in 2017. The company's founder, Sarah Bonham, is a former General Mills employee who grew frustrated with how slowly food innovation was progressing. Willow Cup extracts proteins from almonds, cashews, potatoes, chickpeas and other plants and processes them to produce a rich creamy texture whose consistency is similar to that of cow's milk. According to Bonham, the result is more stable than animal's milk and won't curdle in hot drinks like soy and other plant-based milks do. So with these fabulous innovations, we're chipping away one excuse at a time from people who say, oh, they couldn't possibly go vegan. Well, you certainly can now. (laughs) Consumer protection ministers of the German federal states are pushing for harmonised criteria on vegan and vegetarian food labelling, reports SGS. To date, neither national nor European legislation have provided legally binding requirements for the labelling of vegan and vegetarian food. 
At a conference in April in Dusseldorf, the ministers agreed specific definitions of the terms which will form the basis for the evaluation of food information for German authorities. Vegan foods are described as products that are not of animal origin. At every stage of manufacturing and processing, they shall not include or come into contact with ingredients such as additives, carriers, flavorings, enzymes, processing aids or substances that are not explicitly listed or permitted as food additives, but are used in the same way of animal origin in processed or unprocessed form. So it's great to see Germany take the lead on this. As I reported last week, vegan products are on the rise in Germany, which had the largest number of vegan product launches in Europe in 2015. So it makes sense to have a standard criteria of definitions that can be adhered to not only in Germany, but the whole of Europe. A new vegan juice bar has opened in Plymouth in the UK, reports the Plymouth Herald. Former cocktail waiter Ross Birchall, who worked in many of London's trendy bars, launched root juice in the heart of Plymouth City Market, where his father ran a cobbling business. Now, what's particularly heartening about this is that other market traders have pitched in to help in whatever way they could. Birchall sources much of his fresh fruit and vegetables from the market, while other ingredients, including berries, are brought in from a local organic farm. Birchall, who ran a tattoo studio in the area for several years, says his aim is to offer healthy vegan juices produced with locally and, where possible, organic ingredients in a sustainable way. To this end, juices are served up in cups made from biodegradable plant cellulose. I really love this example of a vegan business starting up and being part of the community where everybody's helping each other out and buying from each other because that's what keeps a local economy going and it's great that the locals in Plymouth have embraced root juice. Finally, a cafe in Melbourne, Australia has launched a vegan blue algae latte and it's getting mixed reviews, reports the New Zealand Herald. The blue drink served up at Matcha Milk Bar earlier this month is made of algae, lemon, ginger agave and coconut milk and it retails at $8. Curious punters couldn't get enough with co-owner Mark Filippelli saying the vegan cafe had sold at least a 100 of them in the first four days of launch. Nicknamed the Smurf Latte (laughs) because of its bright blue colour, it's been described as tasting like sour milk by some, and Filippelli admits it does have a tart aftertaste. Unsurprisingly, images of the unusual-looking beverage were shared liberally on social media. Whether it remains popular in the long run or is a short-term novelty remains to be seen. Now, whatever your take is on this, you can't say vegan eateries lack creativity. And coming up with unique and novel products, of course, is a fantastic way of getting media coverage, as this example demonstrates. Well, I'm certainly curious to try it. If it's still on the menu in October when I visit Melbourne to speak at World Vegan Day, I'll be checking it out. So that's it for this episode of Vegan Business Talk. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you enjoyed the show, please consider giving it a review and a rating on iTunes or any other platform you're listening on. I'm Katrina Fox from veganbusinessmedia.com and I look forward to catching up with you in the next episode. Bye for now. 